Aloha. It's Tuesday, January 2nd. This is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. A new year and a renewed push for housing on Maui to help with the county's recovery. The response to temporarily uh, convert short-term rentals into long-term housing isn't as robust as some would like to see. Will it take a moratorium to move the needle? We hear from a realtor and a property owner. We look at the legislative aid being extended to help Maui's art and culture scene get back on its feet. And starting 2024 with a resolution to get over the fear of public speaking. We'll talk to a Big Island resident known as the Speech Slayer about becoming comfortable speaking in front of a crowd. tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. There's no simple solution to finding long-term housing for Maui families displaced by last year's wildfires. Governor Josh Green is threatening to impose a moratorium on short-term rentals if enough property owners don't step up to house displaced families who are still in hotel rooms almost five months since the fires. This morning we talked to Ken Wills, a realtor and a writer who also farms and operates a short-term rental unit on his land uh, in Kapa'au on the Big Island. He feels a moratorium is a draconian move. It's a heavy-handed solution. I understand the pressure that he's under. And I first want to distinguish between the short-term acute issue for Lahaina and Maui residents and the longer-term long-term housing shortage and how to address that issue. But in terms of the immediate problem in Maui, yes, I think it makes sense to ask short-term rental unit owners to contribute. Some of them are able to, some of them are not. I've looked at the requirements for that FEMA and others have, this, the county have put on volunteering to do that. There's some restrictions that make it difficult. I actually, I'm on the big island, but I actually volunteered to put up our unit for that and was told I'm beyond the 40-mile limit that would make that possible. So I don't know on the island itself of Maui how many people are in that 40-mile limit or can meet other of the restrictions that are placed by the, the government on participating. But not everyone can do it. So to then turn around and, and impose a hammer approach, to, as the governor has threatened, to those who aren't participating on Maui, it seems, I understand the the, the impulse, but I think it's not fair to everyone. It's not the right solution. And discounts the benefits that a lot of short-term rental unit owners are providing to the islands, to tourists, to the economy. You know, I think one solution for him the governor, instead of putting a moratorium in place or, or some heavy-handed uh, take away your your property rights issue, why not open up the the option, the voluntary option to the rest of the state? We now have some Maui residents who are considering moving to the mainland, to Las Vegas. They they're giving up on the islands altogether. But why not say, okay, let's go beyond 
40 miles. Let's go to other islands. We'd rather have the residents staying in the state come over here to the Big Island. I'm sure there are many people running short-term rentals on Oahu or Hawaii that would be willing to take in families. And there are thousands of these units. So if you can't get enough on Maui, let's open it up to the state and see what happens. So let's try that before the more draconian solution. And we have seen efforts to offer incentives to make it more palatable for property owners. And and some, you know, have stepped up. They were willing to house people without any compensation, you know, initially, right. uh, just because you know, of the need and the, the willingness to help uh, our families. But do you think that the, the brushstroke is too broad and that these property owners are, I don't know, being made... <laughs> out to be villains because they're reluctant to offer their units, you know, in that inventory? Well, I do. And again, I think what's important to keep in mind is that the short-term rental units are not monolithic. They're different in rural areas to condominiums in highly dense areas. They're very different. There are some who are operated by mainland residents who are not on site. In our case and many others, the operators are on site. They are watching the people who are renting and making sure they're not loud. There are outliers, of course, in every situation, but to make a broad brush assumption that all short-term rentals are bad, which seems to have taken hold in this state and, and in the debate that's going on, that They've demonized short-term rental owners as greedy or... I think what we need to do is, instead of the anger and vitriol that's come out, to think, what are the common ground solutions? You know, I think we can all agree on certain common areas. Maybe if it's a third, fourth, fifth investment property, you know, that maybe isn't necessary. And maybe we put restrictions on those, but on the the sites that are like in in our rural area here that are providing a very big economic boost to the local economy i think to brush them into the same category is misguided it's bad public policy and we should actually incentivize some of the short-term rentals that are doing farm stays and 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 supporting the food sustainability efforts that is another goal of the state. Instead of you know lumping everyone into the same category, we need to be aware of the, the nuance that exists in this sector because many of these short-term rentals are you know filling the segment of the market that is not being served by the hotels and resorts. They have priced themselves into the upper stratosphere. And the short-term rental operators have come in and said, okay, we know there are a lot of tourists who come in who want affordable housing on a short-term basis, and they come here because that is available. If they have to pay $900, $1,000 a night for hotel, plus rental car, plus taxes, plus, you know, they just can't afford it. And so you will only get a certain type of segment of tourists coming here. We did see during the pandemic when we flew in those traveling nurses, there was a need for short-term rental housing. I think there were even folks that were brought in to work on rail 
you know, that that expertise was needed and they needed a place to stay. You know, they were working uh, to support the economy. So it's interesting. It's not one size fits all, you know, whether it's your neighbor down the street whose daughter's getting married and wants to have relatives, you know, close by in a rental. Mm -hmm. You know, there are just different scenarios as to, you know, who who goes into those rental units. That's right. Let me give you one example of a couple that stayed with us. They came on a weekend for Valentine's Day, and they enjoyed this little corner of Hawaii on the Big Island, North Kohala. They enjoyed it so much, the couple came back again over a couple years, and they finally decided they wanted to get married here. So they rented a wedding site. They hired a caterer. They brought in 50 of their relatives from all over. They rented cars. They all put them all up for, you know, housing. They injected money into the economy during that period. And then those 50 people who came here as well, they were introduced to this part of the island. And they found an attraction and a connection. And then those people, over time, may come back. And so just from this one couple that stayed here in a short-term rental for one weekend, there's an economic impact to the, the community, the greater state, and then all of those businesses that were, you know, the restaurants, the, the caterers, the wedding providers, everything, those people all pay taxes into the state, into the county. And so here, just my example, we pay GE tax, we pay transient tax to the state, we pay transient tax to the county, we pay property tax, we pay income tax. So when you add up all those things, it's quite a big contribution. That's just one of, you know, what is it? We have 10,000 or more short-term rental units in the island here and more across the state. So if you multiply that, I think the economist in the article this morning was saying, you know, I think the output to the state is somewhere near a billion dollars from economic ripple effects from all of these things. It's not something we want to just choke off, although each of the counties seems to be doing that quite well. We saw how Maui County was leading the way in its effort to try and manage the vacation rental piece of tourism. Each county is different. Here in Honolulu, you know, there was a recent decision over a court case, you know, over, you know, how long is short term a vacation rental, yeah. you know, and and so it it's it isn't one size fits all. And it just is more complicated on Maui, given the wildfires and given how we want to stabilize the economy, you know, but how best do we do it? That's true. It isn't one size fits all. But we do need to resist this idea that you can just impose, you know, the governor is under a lot of pressure to solve this short-term problem in Maui. That's impetus for this at the moment. And there are solutions. One of them is to provide incentives and disincentives. But I think he's gone too far in catering to the sentiment that already exists that we have to somehow do away with short-term rentals. Unfortunately, it's, it's breathed life into that movement that does see everything as monolithic. So uh, let's get back to what are our common agreements? You know, where can, we, where can we agree, both in the short-term acute problem for Maui 
And then the bigger problem, which is not that short-term rentals can solve the long-term housing problem in the island. There are some absentee owners. We, we can target them. But this is not the main problem of or the cause of the long-term rental problem in the state. There are many other issues that contribute to that. So that's where we need to focus the attention, uh, and, and the state hasn't done that. Well, you know, we certainly appreciate your time today, but thanks again. Well, thank you, and Happy New Year to you and everyone. I appreciate your time. That was Big Island Realtor and short-term vacation rental owner Ken Will sharing his thoughts on Governor Josh Green possibly imposing a moratorium on short-term rentals. Support for HPR comes from Haleakala Ranch with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at HaleakalaRanch.com. North Korea's embassies do much more than diplomacy. They also rake in foreign cash, often illegally, to sustain the regime. So why is Pyongyang closing many of its embassies? Because they found a better way to bring in the bread, engaging in cryptocurrency. So the thinking goes, the embassies are not needed. That's next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from TS Restaurants and its Legacy of Aloha Foundation, supporting the Maui community and assisting those affected by the wildfires. More about how to help by searching tsrestaurants.com Legacy of Aloha. Lots of effort behind the economic recovery of Maui, and that includes the art scene. HPR reporter Cassie Ordonio joins us this morning. Hi. Good morning, Catherine. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, and we hope it's a happy new year for the artists of Lahaina. Especially that they're going to be recovering from the aftermath of the August 8th wildfire. And speaking of the wildfire, lawmakers are going to have a lot on their plate this coming session on the 17th. We know that lawmakers will be tasked with figuring out how to aid in the Maui recovery efforts. The August 8th wildfire burned much of Lahaina, including galleries on Front Street. It also destroyed the livelihoods of many artists who lost their homes and life works to the flames. Um, I spoke with Jock Armour, the director of Wildland Galleries in Lahaina, and that gallery was burned in the fire, and he hopes uh, that lawmakers will focus on helping Lahaina's art scene. I would love for it to be brought up within these meetings, housing, infrastructure, a lot of things, everything's important, right, to somebody. From an arts, cultural arts perspective, Lahaina was one of the top destinations for art collectors to come visit. Now that brought in revenue for all these other businesses, for restaurants, for hotels, for tour boats, tourism. The whole thing is all 
feeds off each other. Prioritizing a new art scene, I think it should be something that's definitely considered as a high priority because without that, it was kind of a cultural gem, not just on this island, but for the islands or for, in my opinion, the fine art community within our country. It really is something that was lost, not just on a small level, but the people that come to these galleries, they've, they're from all over the world. I mean, every continent you can imagine, they've walked in these galleries. So it's something that needs needs to really be prioritized. If you want to rebuild Lahaina, you got to think of what made it what it was. And that was just one of the driving heartbeats of that community was the arts community. Yeah, he was so right because it was so um, uh, alive. Unfortunately, like I never got to go to Lahaina. The only time I went was, you know, the day the Filipino had the um, the fair over there at Lahaina, the community center. But hearing so much about the art community, we see the banyan tree that was, I guess, is now it's being preserved. There's some um, some life um, into that tree. But that banyan tree was also a symbol of the art community who would go there and showcase their craft under that tree. So it was kind of like this hub for all of the art community over there. And um, what's interesting about Wyland Galleries, when I was talking to Jock Armour, is that that gallery is actually built on wooden stilts over the ocean. So when it burned, much of the gallery, including those sculptures, fell into the ocean, which from a previous story that we did, um, the sculptures were retrieved and um, they're being revitalized right now. But some of the concerns that Jock had that he hopes lawmakers will tackle this coming session is, you know, making sure Lahaina will be rebuilt to what it was and not make not making these um, zoning laws like more complicated and whatnot. But I haven't heard anything from lawmakers if there's going to be any um, revitalization or restructuring of zoning laws in Lahaina. Maybe that might be more of like a county issue um, in the near future. But we know the legislative session is set to begin on January 17, with bills slated to be introduced by then. The cutoff uh, deadline for bills would be January 24, and some bills are in the works. Uh, will create or expand an art therapy program to victims of trauma, incarcerated people, and even students. I remember talking to Karen Ewald, who's now the executive director of um, the Hawaii State Foundation on Culture and the Arts, and from a previous story I did with her on the profile, she was talking about um, crafting a bill that would introduce um, creating such a program, especially for victims of trauma, for folks who um, were recovering from the Maui wildfires. And this was a borrowed idea from Puerto Rico after the 2022 hurricane that devastated the islands. And um, this program, it lets victim create art as a way of therapy. And um, one lawmaker, Representative Adrian Tam, he chairs the Culture and Arts Committee and um, in, in International Affairs or Internal Affairs on the um, House of Representatives side. And he plans to introduce this bill that's still being drafted, but it's too, still too early to say what the bill would actually do. But it could appropriate funds for full-time positions or it could fund uh, the Hawaii State Foundation Culture and Arts to expand that program or create the programs because they already have programs in place. But the um, the agency, the Culture and uh, Arts Found Foundation Agency, they're responsible for managing ten point three million dollars. But seventy five million, uh, seven point five million goes to Bishop Museum, and two million two million dollars goes to Iolani Palace, leaving the foundation with more than about $800,000, and those that money is used to support programs and arts in public places. But Tam said they're also focusing on other aspects on the culture and arts uh, outside of Maui. We're not just focused on the wildfires. We 
are also focused on making sure that the State Foundation on Culture and the Arts has the funds to properly function. One of the things that we are looking at right now is to allow the SFCA to auction off certain artwork under certain conditions. Some of these conditions involve maybe the artwork hasn't been used or been on display for a long time and the artist has passed. Um, but the one caveat that has to happen is that the bonds for each of the artwork has to have the fees. But still much of like the issues of introducing bills or just it's more focused on Maui, to be honest. Um, so Senator Chris Lee wants to mirror a program similar to the aftermath of the Great Depression from the 1920s to 1940s. That was when then President Franklin D. Roosevelt and the New Deal included a works progress pro administrative program, um, which employed job seekers to carry out public projects, including building roads. But Lee said he wants to uh, introduce something similar, but for the art scene that will um, take some time crafting a bill to create such a program. But not only did the galleries burn, so did the livelihoods of artists who lost their homes and artwork. Um, so we know in a previous story that we did, artists who lost much of their artwork and their homes claiming insurance, many insurance, they don't really have like a value of, you know, what's considered art. So it, let's say you painted something that's worth maybe $50,000 of your time and effort, you're not going to get $50,000 back. And here's what Chris Lee had to say about this coming legislative session. You know, there has been a broader discussion about insurance. Actually, a bunch of uh, folks went over to Maui senators and specifically did a, a session with the community on insurance and what that means. You know, when it comes to artists, like we had said, or I think like we had heard, you know, Lahaina is one of the most heavily saturated arts communities in the state. And there's certainly um, now a backlog of claims and all sorts of other stuff that are unresolved. And in this space, it is really difficult. How do you value art that's lost? Especially if you're an artist and have a studio that's full of stuff that you're ready to put on the market and sell, uh, and it was all lost. You know, what is the price tag for that and how do they recover? Because that is time, that is money, that is energy, that is investment that was made on their part, just as any other business would. And so there does need to be a discussion about what that looks like and how we make sure that not only Maui's able to recover and the artists there, but also for the next time there's a hurricane or um, tsunami or who knows what, that we have a process in place that, that makes everything work seamlessly. Yeah, it's a tough one, that insurance issue, you know, and I, I recall one of the early stories that came out of the wildfires uh, very early on was someone who had just opened a gallery and then just lost everything. So, yeah, it's just tragic. And this is what Jock Armour was worried about and hoping the lawmakers will tackle this coming session because he's worried that a lot of gallery owners will be leaving Hawaii sometime soon and they're still trying to figure out what they're going to do in the meantime. Yeah, it's a, a, a dilemma for sure. And so we'll have to see uh, what gets crafted and what gets passed at the end of the day. And hopefully um, it will be soon. We know that the legislative session is going to start on January 17th and the bills will, the cutoff for bills will be introduced by January 24th. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Cassie. Thank you for having me. That was HPR's Cassie Ordonio. You can uh, read her story on hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for HPR comes from Waikoloa Beach Resort on the island of Hawaii, offering Kama'aina hospitality with a range of options for dining, shopping, and activities. More about rediscovering the Kohala Coast at waikoloabeachresort.com. On the next Fresh Air, Bradley Cooper. He wrote, directed, and stars in the new film Maestro about composer and conductor Leonard Bernstein. We'll also be joined by the film's conducting consultant, Yannick Nézé-Ségan. He conducts the Philadelphia Orchestra and the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. Join us. Fresh Air, beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for HPR comes from Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with courses such as art, film, history, and gardening. Classes begin January 22nd. More by searching O-L-L-I-U-H-M. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Today we're testing your knowledge of locomotor skills. For those of you who have never heard of the term, locomotor skills are in use all around you. It's the physical action that moves a person from one place to another. This includes walking, running, skipping, hopping, galloping, and jumping. In relation to the physical development of children, toddlers are generally ready to practice walking around 12 months. Over the next year, their abilities increase and they start running hopping, and jumping. The more challenging skills like galloping, sliding, and skipping can start around 36 months. Child development experts say it's important to practice locomotor skills with our keiki because it helps with their coordination. So the question for today's backyard quiz is what's the difference between skipping and galloping? Think you know? Call 941-3689 or toll-free 1-877-941-3689 with the correct answer and win an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as Women in Need on Kauai. NareedHawaii.com.
one of Lucilla Beat has a story about a North Shore business. When is a farm not a farm? Reporter Christina Jedra joins us for our first reality check of 2024, and it has to do with agriculture land. Good morning, Christina. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yes. And so, you know, we often hear of this uh, concern on the North Shore about gentleman farms, fake farms. And you've got a story today about a, a business um, that does farming and then some. Right. So North Shore Stables is in Waialua near Kayaka Bay. And um, according to the owner operator, Adam Lee, they do farming, they grow crops, they manage animals, but they also have this um, have had this really popular business of offering trail rides for horses and ponies um, and ATV rides as well around their property. And so that has upset some of their neighbors uh, who are concerned about the not only the dust and the noise, but also is this a misuse of ag land. So um, the Department of Planning and Permitting has issued several violation notices telling the farm to stop with the horses and stop with the ATVs. Um, and finally, they've now issued a, a notice of order, meaning it's getting real. There's fines now, and uh, it's it's the issue's heating up. <laughs> yeah, so it has to do with zoning, right? I mean, are, are these activities right. allowed on on that ag land? Right. It's all up to uh, your interpretation of the law, I guess. Uh, DPP seems to think that the, these activities are not allowed on ag land. Um, according to the law, Ag 1 is intended to conserve and protect important agricultural lands. And you really have to be producing food, feed, forage, fiber crops, or horticultural plants. And you can have an agribusiness that is accessory to the main farming that you're doing, but it has to be incidental. Like if you were cultivating um, honey with bees, then you could sell your honey on the property. Um, and so they seem to think that the horses and ATVs are not that kind of agribusiness. Um, but the owner operator, Adam Lee, is looking at the law differently. He says there's a designation for open land for agriculture lands and that ATVs should fall under that and that the horseback riding is an agricultural use. So um, he's facing these fines, but he says he's going to appeal them to the Zoning Board of Appeals and he says he's going to fight this. Yeah, so it is a, a, a touchy subject with with the um, uh, the folks in that area, you know, because they want to make sure that uh, if it's ag, that it is truly ag, uh, because you know that right. that's important land. Right, you know, so many people feel that ag agriculture is so important to expand in Hawaii since we do import so much of our food, and um, you know, a lot of folks are passionate about growing our food here and, and eating local. Um, I spoke to Raquel Achu. She's vice chair of the North Shore Neighborhood Board, and she's a farmer herself. Um, and she said, you know, there's ranchers and farmers working really hard to be good stewards of the land. And, um, you know, some folks like her feel that people are cheating the system. Yeah, I mean, that whole flap about, you know, fake farms, the gentleman farms were mm -hmm. really, it's just, uh, you know, designed to create a, a luxurious house with maybe vacation rental units and just very little bit of ag. So uh, what is the primary use of that land? 
Right, right. And uh, Adam Lee says this is the furthest thing from a fake farm at North Shore Stables. He, he denies any accusations um, that they are not operating legitimately. However, um, for right now, North Shore Stables will, will no longer be offering horseback rides. Um, there were two business partners, Lee and another uh, gentleman named Branson Calpito. So he just incorporated a new company called the Hawaii Horsemanship Academy. Um, however, that organization is uh, advertising lessons at the same Wailua address. So I'm not sure exactly how that will work uh, with the violation. And Lee says the ATV rides will continue um, while while he appeals his yeah. violation notice. It, it's an interesting uh, argument and we'll see um, if that uh, if that holds. But uh, certainly, yeah, uh, as we look at the complexity of land use issues, uh, you know, and, and where they draw the line. So we'll see how this plays out. Yes, we'll keep you updated. All right. Well, thank you so much, Christina. Thank you. We've been talking to HP uh, with reporter Christina Jedra. She's with Honolulu Civil Bee. You can read her story online at civilbee.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. This Saturday, HPR presents the Barton Niscala Duo, live at the Atherton Studio. Watch this cello and piano duo perform works by Dvorak, Mahler, and Clara Schumann, alongside newer pieces celebrating identity through music. For tickets and more information, visit hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for HPR comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kaneohe. Catering available for business meetings and events, rubytuesdayhawaii.com. It's time for the answer to today's backyard quiz. Earlier, we asked you about locomotor skills, the eight different movements that Keiki usually start learning by age three. This includes walking, running, hopping, jumping, galloping, sliding, leaping, and skipping. All of these are the foundation of human movement in a child's development. Toddlers are usually ready to practice walking around 12 months. Running, hopping, and jumping by 24 months, and at 36 months, they begin to master the more complex art of galloping, sliding, and skipping. In the long run, 
practice helps with the child's coordination. Today we asked you what the difference was between skipping and galloping, two forms of locomotion that are based on patterning and rhythm making. Well, it is all in the feet. Skipping involves alternating feet in a step and a hop on the same foot, followed by a step hop on the opposite foot. Galloping is forward moving with the same foot leading over and over again. Congrats to our winner, Matt from Kailua. And hmm, I wonder if you have kids. Well, that's today's quiz. And thanks to seven-year-old Vehi Ubai for the inspiration. If you have a quiz to share, you can send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. When you support HPR, you support community reporting about community issues. It's been more than eight years since a group of families from Ha'ena Kauai established the Ha'ena Community-Based Subsistence Fishing Area. The community creates rules regulating catch limits, size limits, species limits, and more. With your support, HPR brings you voices from our island communities. It's a tool that makes sure that we can keep on practicing and fishing the way we did and not excluding folks but saying like hey if you like come fish in this area this is how we fish this is how we take this is how much we take it's got to be community driven got to be from the people of the place they know their place better than anybody support local reporting on hpr donate at hawaiipublicradio.org popular time to set new goals, but for some people, it's also an, an opportunity to find ways to conquer their fears, like the fear of public speaking. Honoka'a resident uh, Laura Reed is a public speaking coach who's earned the nickname the Speech Slayer. She's originally from upstate New York and grew up with a stutter and a fear of public speaking, but as an adult, she found a way to overcome both. Reed talked to the conversations Russell Subiono about helping others become comfortable with speaking in public. When we think about fears that people have, spiders, snakes, heights, and somewhere in that top five, probably at the top for many, is the fear of public speaking. Why do you think it's something that people fear so much? It's crazy. Uh, usually death comes in at number two. Right. <laughs> death. <laughs> public speaking is, is number one. I think it's because it's something that we're putting ourselves out there in such a vulnerable way. You know, we almost can't control it if, you know, a spider shows up and, you know, bites us or, you know, sharks or th those kind of things. But when we are asked to speak publicly or find ourselves on a stage, suddenly we're very vulnerable in an authentic way too, you know, and like, are we going to be judged? You know, are we going to forget our words? It's just this very guttural sense of judgment. I really think that's behind it most. This fear that we have of how we look and sound in front of others. So for people who do fear public speaking, there are still some times in their lives where they're okay 
you know, telling a story or telling a joke in front of a group of people. You know, they feel comfortable and they perform well in that setting. But the moment you say you have to do this thing in front of a bunch of strangers, it seems like it's a whole different scenario. I think what I find most common, which is really interesting, is a lot of my clients, people I've worked with, like they grow up not really having that fear. For me, it was kind of the opposite. I felt innately born with that, with that fear, but they grow up feeling okay. And then somewhere along the line, and it must be because they all of a sudden had to, whether it's public speaking in college, or they started a business, or they're asked to speak, you know, to their colleagues, they develop this fear gets really strong for them. And I usually ask them like in a, on a scale of one to 10, like, what's your sense of your level of urgency, you know, for like really wanting to overcome this fear? And I kind of secretly know if it's an eight or higher that it's really in them. Like that fear is really kind of built into their nervous system almost. But they really have this desire to just break through it because they see so much on the other side, you know, so so much that that they could be doing. And of course, it's really common when you're speaking to your friends, you're at a party, you're casually speaking, you're not worried about what you're going to say next or, you know, any of that. It's very comfortable. And, you know, one of my strategies and techniques I think is most successful with people. And it's something you're never going to (laughs) find anywhere else because I I invented it (laughs) um, on a trial and error myself. And it goes against so much of what our society values. But, you know, you can't really go a day, at least on social media, without hearing, you know, you got to get out of your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. You know, life begins at the end of your comfort zone. You know, if you're not breaking out of your comfort zone daily, you're not really living and challenging yourself. And I really disagree with that because when we feel that we are in our comfort zones, right, watching Netflix, like whatever it is, you know, we can recite anything, we can remember anything, we're authentically ourselves, we don't have to think about it. And when we tell ourselves, you know, on the flip side, that we're breaking free from our comfort zone, breaking out of it, like our brains literally go into that, you know, nervous brain mode. And we, and when that happens, you know, we forget our words, right? We, we can't, we don't feel like we're going to be ourselves. All those nervous symptoms start to emerge, right? It's exactly what we don't want when we're speaking in front of people, right? So I challenge um, people I work with to imagine their comfort zone, really describe it. What are those feelings you feel in that comfort zone? And then when they're speaking in front of people in a way that, you know, makes them feel that sense of urgency and that nervousness normally, to set that intention, you know, instead of being like confident, I'm going to be calm. You know, I'm going to be myself, right? Instead of like having to go out there and just, you know, fake it till I make it or anything like that, you know, to just, just imagine, you know, imagine they're on the couch speaking to a friend, you know, you're just, it's on a presentation, you're just having a conversation, you know, with people that are really there to support you. I read a little bit about your backstory and how you were a stutterer when when you were younger. Can you talk a little bit about the fear of public speaking that you had to overcome and how you overcame it? So it's really been a lifelong thing for me. But when I was little, I think one of my first memories of it was believing that there was like this monster that lived in my throat. 
You know, a lot of children worry about the monsters in their closet under their bed. For me, it was in me. And it's like it existed as a separate kind of entity within me. And when I would try to speak or someone asked me a question, it's like it would it would wake up and eat my words, kind of take my breath. My face would turn a bit blue. Sometimes I had to stomp my foot to get a word out. Remember being bullied a lot, people making fun of me. I went through some years of speech therapy. Eventually, you know, became more fluid. I remember in high school going through some years of, I don't know what it was, a surge of some kind of, you know, rebellious confidence that I had in high school. I was in some plays and I loved that. I could recite poems and drama club, that type of thing. But then it came back strong as I got older, I felt like. And there just came a point about, 17, 18 years ago now, I was in a staff training for teaching my first job back from being home with my my son for a while. And we're just going around the room. I saw the word that I hated so much to see on an agenda, introductions, right? As soon as I saw the word, I started panicking. I was going to pass out and I ran to the bathroom. I never introduced myself. I went home sick, but really I went home ashamed. And that day, maybe it was about being a mom, I don't know what kicked in, but it was like, I've got to change this. I've got to change. And I found a unlikely place of refuge after seeing a flyer passing by it for a storytelling competition in Ithaca, New York. And I entered the competition. It's the scariest thing I'd ever done. And I got up on that stage and I told my story in front of everyone. I won that competition and then that really boosted my self-confidence there. And, and I started entering all these competitions and I just loved it. I loved it. And again, it's that acts of courage, acts of confidence led me to have the fluency that I do today and overcome that fear. When you work with the people that come to you for help, how do you share with them what the benefits are? of becoming a strong public speaker. You know, off the top of my head, maybe it opens up doors for jobs, but I imagine there's gotta be far more benefits to being able to be confident as a public speaker. Things come up in your life where definitely, you know, job interview and there's that practical side of it, you know, and I do help people like I just helped a young fireman or wants to be a fireman in a series of job interviews. It's very competitive to entrepreneurs, to, you know, people running for public office, that type of thing. So there's that practical side of it. However, there is this other like much deeper benefit that comes from it. And I always feel confident making this promise to people that I work with, that when you begin to really own your voice and own your story and begin to share it with people, there's something else that happens. Like it's, you know, I don't want to overuse the word magical, you know, because, you know, most people come to me and very, you know, they, it's a practical, practical things that they, they want out of this, you know, but something else does happen on a more, a deeper, maybe more spiritual level where they just have this sense of, of liberation, perhaps the shame, that inner shame that they've been lugging around like a weight on them, you know, that that fear, it weighs us down and it's exhausting, you know, and I speak from obvious experience on that, like to live every day a little scared. Oh, what am I going to, what is my boss going to ask me to speak? And I'm so nervous about this interview or, you know, I want to speak at this conference so bad, but I'm, I'm, I'm too scared. You know, um, it's exhausting to feel, to feel that. So I think mostly it's that, that newfound sense of like, 
that the world has just opened up to you, you know, in this this new way. And what's beautiful about it is, is you know, anybody can experience that. We all have that that potential to be on big stages, small stages, change people's lives. Anything is possible once you begin to really own that. Brene Brown's my favorite quote from her. She says, you either walk inside your story and you own it, or you stand outside your story and you struggle for your worthiness. So for those who are done, like struggling with their worthiness, then I always encourage like it's time to own your story. Laura Reed, the author of the public speaking horror show, Seven Secrets to Kill It as a Speaker. Can you tell our listeners where they can get your book and how they can reach you if they're interested in taking that step to getting over their fear of public speaking? The book is available on Amazon. And locally, I'm going to get it in Kona Stories for anyone here locally, and and hopefully the Barnes & Noble in Oahu pretty soon, too. It, it just came out Halloween. Oh, and if anyone wants to reach out to me, you can also find me at thespeechslayer.com. Laura, thank you so much for your time today. Really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much, Russell. The Speech Slayer. That was public speaking coach and author Laura Reed talking with HBR's Russell Subiano. We will have links to her book and to connect with her to improve your public speaking on the conversation page of our website right after the show. Well, we are all out of time now, but tomorrow we plan to talk about the minimum wage, which just went up to $14 an hour yesterday. What do you think about the wage hike? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can find the conversation segments on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in for podcasts or on our website. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. The Conversation.